at the start of World War II, uh, Oskar Schindler was a member of the Nazi Party, a successful industrialist. He owned a factory in Krakow, Poland, uh, that employed lots of Jews. Uh, when Hitler started sending Jews to the concentration camps, it would have been easy for Schindler to keep quiet, to follow orders and to go with the flow. After all, that's what most Germans were doing, including the church. It would have been easy to use circumstances around him to justify making sinful, fearful decisions, to justify taking convenient shortcuts, to say, well, I'm just following orders, what difference can one man make? Everyone else is saying nothing. But instead Schindler did what was right. He did what was difficult. He did all that he could to protect his Jewish workers and more. Uh, He'd buy luxury items on the black market to use to bribe party officials. Uh, He'd claim that workers, wives and children and even the disabled were actually mechanics and metal workers in his factory and were vital to the war effort. By the end of the war he'd used his entire fortune to protect the Jewish workers he called my children. Now Oscar Schindler was no saint, Uh, he had lots of flaws but in the midst of a terrible situation he refused to let circumstances govern or excuse his responses. So what about you? Are there times when you're tempted to let your your circumstances excuse your choices? Uh, Maybe you're stuck in a traffic jam, you're in a hurry, your time is more important than everyone else's, you say, and so you blast your horn and you push in and you hope no one notices the Christian fish sticker on the back of your car. Or perhaps you're in the swimming pool, change rooms, uh, and someone's left behind a nice pair of swimming goggles on the bench, and and you think, well, I've had lots of pairs that just disappear, and and you try them on and they fit, and you think, well, serves someone right, and you pop them in your bag and you hope no one sees. Or maybe an opportunity comes to speak up for Jesus with a friend but you say to yourself, well, I don't want to ruin the friendship and they seem quite happy. It would make things weird and so you say nothing. Uh, Or maybe someone hurts you and they really deserve it and uh, they need to learn a lesson and you have to stand up for yourself and so you hurt them back. Uh, It's using your circumstances to justify a sinful or a fearful reaction. What's God to say, what does God have to say to you if that's you? Well, he wants us to learn from David. Uh, in these chapters, 21 to 26, we see David being tempted in the same way. He's being chased around the countryside by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. David's lost his family, he's lost his wife, he's lost his best friend. It'd be easy to use all of that as an excuse to feel sorry for himself, to lash out, to shortcut God's timing by taking matters into his own hands. But right in the middle of these chapters, chapter 25, we see some great advice from Abigail. David and his men are in the desert, they're hiding from Saul, and that's where Nabal's flocks are. And David's little army look after the shepherds and the flocks and there's not one sheep that's lost. And so when shearing time comes around and the the, the parties have started, David sends a message to Nabal. We've helped you out. How about sharing a little of that party spirit with us? 
but Nabal won't give them a crumb. Verse 10, who is this David? Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? When David hears, he explodes, forget common courtesy, forget helpful gestures, Nabal is just asking for it. Verse 13, strap on your swords, he says. And he storms down out of the hills to kill Nabal and all of his household. He says to himself, verse 21, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property has done me so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. In other words, circumstances justify my actions. This person's behaved in a certain way. I'm within my rights to behave in a certain way as well. Well, when Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about it, she rushes out to meet David and his band with a huge picnic basket for everyone to share and and she's trotting up the road on her donkey as David and his army or his band are storming down. We're told that she's gorgeous and intelligent, she's everything Nabal isn't and to top it off, she's got the insight and the faith of a prophet of God. It's no wonder David marries her when he gets the chance. Uh, Look at what she says in verse 28. Please forgive your servant's offence. The Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, that's David, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Probably a little flattery about David's famous victory there. She continues, When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. In other words... She's saying to David, don't let my husband's stupidity, don't let Saul's evil plans provoke you to do something that's just as evil or just as dumb. Don't let those things, uh, don't use those things as an excuse to do the wrong thing. And she reminds David about how God has promised and how God is faithful. God has planned, he's working them out. Uh, And David's response should be to trust God, to trust his plans. Keep doing things his way, according to his character. Have integrity, be patient. And through it all, she points him towards the day when he does become king. When you finally do become leader, there, there won't be this needless guilt of bloodshed that's hanging over your reign. She's saying you show that you trust God's promises by doing things his way, by being obedient. You don't try to shortcut or speed up or sidestep God's plans. Patience, contentment and obedience are expressions of trust, trusting God. Well, David recognises good advice when he hears it. The, the, The picnic basket is an added bonus and he says, verse 33, 
May you be blessed for your good judgement and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and and for avenging myself. And then he sends her home in peace. And then we see that God ends up delivering justice to Nabal. Well, that's Abigail. A couple of chapters earlier, we see Jonathan reminding David in a similar sort of way. If you flip back a page to chapter 23, chapter 23, verse 15, David is out in the desert, he's running away from Saul and Jonathan comes to him and we're told, helped David find strength in the Lord, verse 15. And then in verse 17 of chapter 23, Jonathan says, Don't be afraid, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. He's reminding David of God's promises. And he's trusting that, uh, and trusting God, uh, trusting God's promises is shown by David not being afraid. Don't be afraid, says Jonathan. You show your trust in God by not being afraid. How good is it to have faithful friends like Abigail and Jonathan who can remind us about God and his plans and encourage us to keep following him? But David doesn't always get such good advice. These are just two little instances. He's not always making the right decision. Our chapters begin back in chapter 21. So flip back another couple of pages to chapter 21 and we'll sort of skim through a few events. Chapter 21, David is running for his life and he arrives at Nob where Ahimelech the priest is in charge of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the tent where, God's, uh, where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is kept. Uh, David arrives alone and Ahimelech's afraid. He thinks, oh, I'm going to be aiding and abetting a fugitive if I help him. If it had been official business, then there he would have soldiers with him. For some reason, David feels justified to lie to him about his purposes. He's on a special mission from Saul, he says. He asks for some bread, Ahimelech gives him some, uh, but Ahimelech's fears are realised because verse 7 Doeg the Edomite overhears the conversation. David's after more than bread though. Verse 8, he's come for a spear or a sword. Now, for most people that would seem perfectly reasonable, except this is the same David who as a boy had said to Goliath, you come against me with spear and sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. He's the only weapon I need. Uh, this day the Lord will hand you over to me. That's what the boy David had said. Is it just a coincidence that it's uh, Goliath's own sword that David comes for, that Ahimelech has stashed away? Or is it just a coincidence that David actually has to walk past the ephod to reach this sword? Now, what's the ephod? Well, We don't exactly know what it was but it was some sort of gear that the priest would put on when he asked God's guidance. It should have been enough for David. David should have gone into the tabernacle and said, ask God's advice about what I should do. God has promised him the throne, God will guide him. But David is not looking to God for the answer, he wants the human solution. He he walks past the ephod and takes Goliath's sword. And instead of rejoicing in God and in his plans, he rejoices in the weapon he now has, 
There is none like it. Excalibur. And the comparison with the boy David still casts a shadow. He's got the weapon. Uh, Verse 10, he now heads for King Kish in the town of Gath. Now Gath is Goliath's hometown. Can you imagine what the people of Gath thought when David turns up with Goliath's sword in his belt? There's none like it. It's distinctive. Uh, The servants start singing the song of David slaying his ten thousands, most of them Philistines. Uh, And David's reaction is perhaps unexpected for David. Verse 12, he took their words to heart and was very much afraid. Something we've never seen before in David. The boy David wasn't afraid of anything. God was with him. But here is the man David letting circumstances influence his reactions. What does he do? He pretends to be crazy so that the Philistines won't feel threatened by him. He leaves Gath, he heads into the desert. Saul is asking around and uh, Doeg, the eavesdropper, pops up again. Uh, Down in chapter 22, verse 9, he he tells Saul about David's visit to Ahimelech. Ahimelech is summoned, verse 19, uh, Ahimelech and all of the priests with him are murdered by Doeg because they chose to help David rather than Saul. And only Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, escapes. Uh, Verse 22 of chapter 22, he makes it to David uh, and David says, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Uh, It's a sorry tale and it's all because he chose to trust earthly weapons instead of trusting God. Uh, He let the circumstances dictate his response. He feared man rather than God. He trusted earthly weapons rather than trusting God. That's 21 and 22. As we move into chapter 23, it does seem like David has learned some lessons. He hears the Philistines are attacking the Jewish town of Keilah and instead of just grabbing the sword and heading off, he actually looks to God for guidance. Uh, Verse 6 says that Abiathar had brought the ephod with him when he'd fled the tabernacle. Uh, He asked God's advice. God says attack twice and and David does and he wins. Uh, Saul hears about the victory and he thinks he can trap David within the city walls. David hears that Saul's on his way. Uh, And again, instead of just running, verse 9, he asks God's advice twice. And God advises him and they escape before Saul arrives. And just in case we think that this is all David's smart planning or David's powerful weapons, verse 14 says, Day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. God was the one who was guiding. More of the same, David keeps running, Saul keeps searching. Uh, We've made it to chapter 24. They've moved into the desert of Engedi. David and his band are hiding in a cave. Saul happens to head into the exact cave to relieve himself, all by himself. And he takes off his cloak to make things easier. Now, I won't go into details, but I'm sure you can imagine the difficulties of navigating the task 
wearing a long robe. And listen to the advice that the men give David. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They interpret the situation to mean God's done this, God's put Saul here for you to kill him. David creeps off, he, he, instead of killing him he cuts a corner of the robe but doesn't do anything else. But this is more than just gathering evidence. You see this cloak is the royal cloak. It's a sign of Saul's kingship. And so by cutting a corner off that robe, David is saying, in effect, I want a piece of your kingdom. I'm going to take it. He may not be murdering Saul, but there's at least the desire for Saul's kingdom. Afterwards, he feels guilty. I shouldn't have lifted a hand against the Lord's anointed. Maybe it's even just the the desire that he's guilty about. He forbids his soldiers from attacking Saul. Saul leaves, he makes it a safe distance away and perhaps on the hill across the other side and David calls out to him, verse 9, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. And then he holds up the corner of the robe that he's cut. Look, I I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul, at least for the moment, admits his sin. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I. You've treated me well and I've treated you badly. You've just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? In other words, Saul is saying most people, when circumstances happen, take the chance, but not you. What is that? And then he makes two very interesting comments in verse 19. May the Lord reward you for your behaviour. What does that mean? Well, it's got to mean, may he give you the kingship, doesn't it? And he says, secondly, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Saul can see that, but he's still fighting it. He still keeps fighting it. So, verse 22, Saul returns home. David doesn't trust him wisely and he heads off back into the mountains. Uh, Saul's new attitude doesn't last very well, uh, sorry, doesn't last very long. Uh, If we jump across chapter 25 with Abigail that we looked at earlier, we see chapter 26, a very similar situation. Saul comes after David again. God gives David another perfect chance to kill Saul. And one of Saul's men even says, look, I'll do it for you. But this time, David's not even tempted. He doesn't need anyone to remind him because through all of these twists and turns, through the temptations and the trials, it seems like David's learnt. Trust God, don't take shortcuts. Leave the timing, leave the execution of the plans up to him. 
and it seems like God's plan is to use those very difficulties to mould David, to make him into the sort of king that God wants, a king who's not like Saul. And as we turn to the New Testament, we see that God does the same things for us. He uses our circumstances to do his work in us, to mould us into the likeness of Jesus. And so maybe instead of you using your circumstances as an excuse for sin or an excuse for faithless behaviour, maybe God wants you instead to rejoice in those difficulties. Maybe he wants you to be patient in, uh, for his timing. Maybe he wants you to not fear the scary bits. Maybe he wants you to trust his promises and his faithfulness when things seem out of control. Or turn it around. Maybe he wants you to be an Abigail or a Jonathan for a Christian brother or sister who is doing it tough, who's going through those difficulties. Maybe he wants you to be reminding them of God's purposes and his promises and his faithfulness, to pray with them, to stand with them, to encourage them. Let's be honest, Uh, we have all reacted to these sorts of circumstances around us with a lack of patience, with a sinful response and a lack of faith. All of us have taken that sinful shortcut. We use the circumstances to justify it to ourselves instead of trusting and obeying God. Maybe it was the angry retaliation when someone hurt or embarrassed us. Maybe it was dishonest words. Maybe it was self-pity at how things had turned out for you and it excused your sinful choice. Or maybe there was a lack of contentment that led you to complain or to seek pleasure or to seek your satisfaction in some way other than with God, some form of selfishness. But in one way or another we've all done it, haven't we? So what do you do when you've messed up like that, like David? Well, the first thing you do is you're thankful that you don't have a king like David. We have a king, Jesus. Jesus who never took revenge. Jesus who never took faithless, sinful shortcuts. He never used circumstance as an excuse to sin. Especially as he went to die on a cross, He even had his closest friend, Peter, say to him, don't go there. May it never be. Don't go to the cross. There has to be another way. Uh, But despite all of that, through it all, Jesus continued to trust his father's plans. He rejected every sinful shortcut and he did it for us. And when he died on the cross, he did it for us. It was later on, probably years later, Peter finally understood and he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is the one who, unlike David, trusted God even when it was hardest. 
He rejected sinful shortcuts as the way out. He trusted God far more than David did. David did it so he could be king, but Jesus did it to save us. Peter goes on to say in verse 24 of 1 Peter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus did that for a reason, that we might not allow circumstances to excuse our sin, but that we might instead live for righteousness. Jesus was the example where to follow. Peter goes on to say where to look to Jesus and imitate Jesus. In the paragraphs around these verses in 1 Peter 2, we get all of these sorts of instructions. Verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves to every authority. Verse 17, Show proper respect to everyone. Verse 19, don't use unjust suffering as an excuse to disobey God. Slaves, submit to masters, even those who are harsh, for it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Peter's got it, do you see? Don't let circumstances give you an excuse for sinful behaviour. But how can we do that? How is it that we're able... Uh, to trust God through it and choose the right response. Well, have a look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21. He says, look to Jesus. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus is the king who saves us from our sinful, faithless disobedience and then sets us an example and calls us to follow him and then gives us his spirit that empower, who empowers and motivates us to do it. As we look to Jesus as our example and trust the faithfulness and the power and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Uh, these words, these stories, the example of David. Uh, In some things we want to follow him and imitate him. In others we realise that he's he's like us, he's inconsistent. Uh, But we do thank you for the perfect example of our King Jesus uh, who when he was ridiculed and abused turned the other cheek and didn't retaliate. Uh, We thank you that he went through all of that to bear our sins. We pray that we might follow his example, empowered by his spirit, that we might bring him glory. Amen.